If you would take your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue on together there. When it comes to things of value, we as humans want confirmation of authenticity. As it turns out, the more valuable that something is reported to be, the more necessary and vital it is to have confirmation of its authenticity. Throughout history, this has been clearly demonstrated probably most obviously through gold. Gold is one of the oldest forms of currency in human history, and it still has great value even today. But one of the problems with gold has always been the fact that it can be mixed with other metals or minerals and become impure. In addition to that, there's also a mineral, as you know, called pyrite that looks strikingly similar to gold that's been called fool's gold. And so, if gold is going to be a primary form of currency or it's going to be valuable, then it's got to have a system of verification. That's actually where we get the term hallmark. For many of us, the term hallmark might bring up images of sappy, predictable, low-budget, romantic films. But, but that's not where the term finds its origin. In, in fact, it comes from the Goldsmiths Hall in London. In the 1700s, the Goldsmiths Hall in London was given the responsibility of testing and verifying the purity of gold as well as other valuable objects. And once that gold was tested and verified, it received the stamp or the imprint of the hall in London, therefore becoming the hall mark. It was a symbol of verification, of authenticity. And so the concept of, of authenticity or verification is, of course, important with valuable objects, but it's also important when it comes to truth. How do we know that one thing is true and another thing is false? And this, of course, is especially crucial for us when we're talking about eternal truths, when we're talking about salvation. How do we know that this great salvation presented to us in Hebrews is the one true salvation? Many have asked that question over the centuries. How do we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the true gospel? In a world that's filled with all kinds of voices telling us to follow this way or that, how do we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the authentic, verified way of salvation? Well, the author of Hebrews wants us to understand this morning that God himself has given clear and undeniable witness to the authenticity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is true that we believe the gospel by faith. But understand as Christians that our faith is not a blind faith based upon wishful thinking. It's a faith based on the witness of God himself to the authenticity of his son and the gospel that his son came preaching and ultimately the gospel he accomplished. And it's my prayer this morning after our time together in the scriptures that you will never again be tempted to doubt the authenticity of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. With that in mind, let me just briefly bring us up to speed on where we are in Hebrews, in case you haven't been with us. The theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. And we began by seeing six proofs in the text that Jesus is superior to the angels. They're there on the text for you. I won't go back through those. You can go listen to those messages. But we have these six proofs that Jesus is superior to the angels and we've been looking at this larger theme, which is that Jesus, as God's divine son, is undeniably superior 
to the angels. But beginning in chapter 2, in verse 1, it's like the author takes a, a short pause on his argumentation and he begins to give us an important implication. Why does this matter? Why should you care that Jesus is superior to the angels? Well, that brings us to our text, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Read with me there again. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. What we've begun to understand from these first four verses of chapter 2 is that we must give our utmost attention to the words of the Son. And we've seen this great implication that the gospel demands greater attention. The gospel demands greater attention. What the author means by that is that this final revelation given to us by Jesus should grab our attention in an even more serious way than the Old Testament and the Mosaic Covenant grabbed the attention of those who had that originally. Last time, we saw the explanation of the implication. The explanation is that the gospel brings greater consequences. The gospel brings greater consequences, and therefore it demands our attention. What do you mean it brings greater consequences? Well, the author argued with this conditional statement. Remember this if-then statement. He said, if the law, the Old Testament law, was binding, and if the Old Testament law was enforced, then do not neglect the gospel. It was a sober warning to us. Where the author says, listen, if the Old Testament law which God gave through the angels was binding and it was punished when people neglected it, how much more will God bring judgment upon us if we fail to heed the words of the gospel given by the Son? And so the author exhorts us, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, he turns in our text today from the negative to the positive. Last time was a very sober warning. It was kind of a wake-up message from the author to say, pay attention because you cannot afford to neglect the gospel because God's wrath would be the consequence. But today he turns the corner and he says, not only is there a negative reason, a consequence for neglecting the gospel, there's also a positive reason why we should pay such close attention to these wonderful words. And that is because they have been confirmed by God. They rest on solid ground of God's confirmation. So with that in mind, we're going to look at this final section of verses 1 to 4. And today we have the confirmation. We've seen the implication, the explanation, and now the confirmation. The gospel has been undeniably confirmed. Look back at chapter 2, beginning uh, in halfway through verse 3. 
He says, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. What we have in these final verses is a, a threefold confirmation. A threefold confirmation. In three different ways, the gospel that Jesus came teaching and preaching has been confirmed to us, the author says. So let's look at the first confirmation. Confirmation number one is the Son. The Son, the Lord Jesus. Notice he says, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord. This is pointing us right back to where we began in chapter 1 in Hebrews, where we read, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. When he says here in the, in the text, after it was spoken, the word it refers back to this great salvation. When we left off last time, he said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's what we're talking about here. After this great salvation was first spoken through the Lord. Now, when we say this great salvation, it obviously includes the gospel, but really all that Jesus said has been confirmed to us. This great salvation really is the sum total of all that Jesus taught, with the gospel, of course, being at the center of what he taught. The first confirmation that this is true is that it came from Jesus himself. He was the first person to speak this new revelation from God. And we notice a parallel in the language of the text. Because back in verse 2, if you look at verse 2, right at the beginning, he says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. And now in our text, in verse 3, he says, After it was at first spoken through the Lord. That's intended to grab our attention. There's a parallel here. He's talking about these two different uh, instances of revelation in which the angels were the mediator of one, and now Jesus Christ is the mediator of the second both of them come from God the Father. God the Father spoke through the angels to Moses, and God the Father spoke through the Son to the original uh, hearers, and then ultimately to us through the Scriptures. This reminds us that the gospel first came through the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ in this new covenant. It also reminds us that the key focus of the ministry of Jesus was teaching and preaching. Obviously, Jesus came to die for our sins. That was the ultimate mission he was sent on. But first, he came primarily to teach and to preach. And he, he preached the gospel, and then he fulfilled the gospel by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. I want you to see how clearly this is spelled out in the scriptures, because this is crucial for us to understand. What was the heartbeat of the ministry of Jesus? What did he see as his primary mission leading up to the cross? We see it beginning in the, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at a couple of passages from Mark here and follow this stream of thought. Mark 1, beginning in verse 14. It says, Now after John, that's John the Baptist, had been taken into custody... Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Mark records that the very first thing that Jesus did after John the Baptist is taken into custody, which really was the precursor to Jesus now taking center stage. So as soon as Jesus takes center stage, 
in his ministry, what does he do? He came preaching, preaching the gospel. And he goes on preaching. Later in the same chapter, just a few verses down, Jesus is going to choose his 12 disciples. And then on the very next Sabbath, he's going to enter, enter a synagogue there and begin to preach. Mark 1, verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began, what? To teach. They were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So only then after this teaching ministry does Jesus begin to do miracles. In fact, he does a miracle in the very next verses. In verses 23 to 26, Jesus casts out a demon from a man right there in that same synagogue. In the same synagogue where he just preached, he casts out this demon. And notice the reaction of the, the people to the miracle. It's very interesting. Verse 27, Mark 1, 27. They were all amazed. So they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Now this is interesting. Notice that the people understood right away that this miracle that Jesus performs was not about the miracle itself. It was a validation of all that he had just said. They said, what is this new teaching with authority he's backing up his teaching with miracles what is this and so as we would expect the the news of Jesus spreads far and wide in our contemporary language we could say Jesus was trending right people are going nuts they're going on foot they're telling everybody their friends their family you've got to know about this man named Jesus he just taught in the synagogue and then he backed it up by healing this man so what happens well, Jesus goes into the house of Peter. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, and people gradually begin to gather at the house. In fact, it says in verse 33 that the whole town, the whole city comes and gathers at the house to see and hear of this man named Jesus. And they come bringing those who are sick, who need help. And Jesus, of course, in his compassion, heals them of their various diseases. But the next day, Jesus does something really surprising. Now, from our human perspective, and certainly from the perspective of the apostles, Jesus' public ministry so far is going really well, wouldn't you say? He's had about a week of ministry, and the whole town is already coming out to hear him. And just one day, the whole city of Capernaum has come to see Jesus. In our minds, and maybe in the minds of the apostles, they're thinking, this is great. Let's stay here for weeks, if not months, right? Let's set up a tent and have one of those old-fashioned tent revivals, we might say. Let's, let's just park here. But something interesting happens. That's not what Jesus does. Mark 1.35, in the early morning, this is the very next day, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else. Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. Why? So that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. That is what I came for. You know, we focus a lot on the miracles that Jesus did, and they were wonderful. They, they, they deserve our focus and attention, but in the right vein. Jesus said, I came to preach. The miracles are a testimony 
to what my preaching is, not the other way around. He says, let's go somewhere else. And so it is that the author of Hebrews says, this great salvation came to us first through the preaching of the Son. He came, and he gave it to us. And that in and of itself is enough, is it not? That, that's enough of a confirmation right there that this gospel and this teaching that we have in the New Testament came primarily and first from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, what further confirmation could we possibly need to believe the gospel than the fact that God's own divine son came and took on human flesh and gave it to us and then died and rose again from the grave? I mean, that sort of seals the deal. And yet the author of Hebrews says, but God wasn't done. We have more confirmation of this gospel and of these words than just Jesus Christ. Confirmation number two is the apostles. The apostles. Look back at the text. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, secondly, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. The word us there refers to the author and the original audience. So he says it was confirmed to, to you and me, the author says. It, of course, refers again to this great salvation. So this great salvation that was first preached through Jesus, the author says, was confirmed to you and me by those who heard. Now before we move on, we have to understand the importance of this word confirmed. I've talked a lot about the, the present tense in the Greek language because it, it is an important tense. The present tense, remember, indicates ongoing action, that something is continuing. But there's another tense in the Greek language that, that indicates exactly the opposite. Rather than an ongoing action, it indicates a one-time completed action. It's done and over. That's the tense of this word confirmed. When the author says that it was confirmed, he uses the errorist tense to say this was a one-time completed action and it's done. It's been confirmed. It's not continuing to be confirmed over and over and over again. Now we'll get back to that in a moment because that idea is significant. It's going to play into the rest of our text later. So just log that away that confirmed is in the errorist tense, a one-time completed event. But let's answer the question, how exactly was it confirmed to the author and the original audience. He says it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Who, who, who are these people? By those who heard. So what the author is saying is that we are a generation removed. The generation that was there with Christ, they heard it from the mouth of Christ and then they confirmed it to us. So who are these people that are the bridge between Jesus and this next generation? Primarily, we're talking about the apostles. Obviously, all of the disciples of Christ went out preaching and teaching, but it was the apostles who were the official delegates of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom the word of God was handed down and stewarded into what we have now in the New Testament. Notice, this is the author himself here telling us this, and he puts himself in this third category. This is how we know that Hebrews was not written by an apostle. It's because he says, we heard it, I heard it, from those who heard Jesus. And so he's saying, I am not one of those. It was given to me, handed down to me. He was likely a close associate of an apostle, but not an apostle himself. Let's talk about the apostles for a moment, because this is really important for us to understand. The apostles were handpicked by Jesus to be his representatives. He hand 
picked them. He personally discipled them, he mentored them, and he taught them so that they would be equipped to then give his words to the people after he ascended to the Father. And let me show you just how significant and important this selection of the twelve was to Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, we see that he spent the entire night in prayer before choosing the twelve. Luke 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Now, when you think of the disciples of Jesus, you may just picture the 12 always following him around. But notice here, he says he called a whole group of disciples to him. And out of that larger group chose 12. What that means is there, there were more than just the 12. There's a group. In fact, the Bible talks about the 70 and then the 500. There, there, were, there were more than just the 12 followers, but he handpicks 12 of them and says, designates them as apostles. So what does the word apostle mean? Apostle means an official messenger, delegate, or envoy. An official messenger, delegate, or envoy. An apostle, in the general sense, could be a messenger of, of any person or group. A king could send an apostle, a delegate, an envoy. What makes the 12 so significant is who they were apostles of. These are the apostles, the delegates, the envoys of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he chose 12, and only 12. And then, of course, the apostle Paul as well. Judas falling away, Matthias being added. After that, but 12 apostles plus later the Paul. Now, this is significant for us because these are the men. By choosing the 12, Jesus is saying, You 12, only you 12, are going to serve as my official representatives, my official messengers, delegates, envoys. But we know that these specific men were his chosen messengers, not only because of how he sets them apart near the beginning of his ministry, but also because of what he says to them at the end of his ministry. We have this intimate scene, one of my favorite sections of scripture, in the upper room discourse. You remember in the Gospel of John, just before Jesus is going to be arrested, he has this private meal and discussion with his, his uh, 12 disciples, and he speaks very, very pointed but tender words to them. And listen to some of the things that he says to them. He's preparing them to leave. So here in the upper room discourse, we're going to read a couple of sections John 14, beginning in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, this is one of those passages that people like to pull out of context and try to apply to themselves, that, that Jesus is just going to teach us all things in our minds with, apart from the Scripture. In context, Jesus is talking to the 12, more specifically the 11. And he's telling them, when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to remind you, 11, of all that I taught you. Because they're going to serve as his witnesses. The next chapter, John 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. 
Then one final text from this section in John 16. I'm going to jump down to verse 12. In verse 12, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, listen to this, he will guide you, apostles, into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he makes, takes of mine and will disclose it to you. This is all in the upper room discourse. Jesus, of course, goes on to be arrested, crucified, resurrected. And on the day before, as he's about to be, or the day of his ascension, rather, he speaks to the disciples one more time, Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, why am I taking us on this journey? It's because I want you to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus specifically chose these apostles and only these apostles to be his specific representatives, his chosen hand-picked delegates. And that's significant because it's what the author of Hebrews is telling us here it first came through the Lord Jesus Christ and then it was confirmed to us this next generation by those who heard specifically by the apostles now it does bring up a question how do we know how do we know that the apostles remained faithful to what Jesus told them to do I mean we've proved without a shadow of a doubt beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus chose them and that he gave them this task. But how do we know they didn't add in some other things after he was gone? How do we know that they didn't sort of craft the gospel into their own making? Well, that brings us to a third and final confirmation. And it's the confirmation of the Father. The Father. We have the confirmation of the Son of these revelatory words of the gospel. Then we have the confirmation of his delegates, the apostles. And now we have the final confirmation of the Father, God the Father. Look back at the text. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. And then finally, God also testifying with them. The final piece of confirmation comes from the fact that God the Father gave visible testimony to the accuracy and truthfulness of the apostolic witness. The Father came alongside as the apostles were preaching and teaching and saying, listen, this is what Jesus says. The Father comes along and says, listen to them by validating what they say. How, how does he do that? How does the, the Father do this? Well, the author says that it's through the use of the miraculous sign gifts. Through the miraculous sign gifts. And he describes these miraculous gifts with several different words, but really it's one package deal. They all talk about the, ultimately the sign gifts. Now, each of these words that he uses sort of give us a different shade of meaning that helps our understanding, but they're all really talking about the same thing. Look at how he describes these miraculous gifts. 
God, verse 4, also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, this term, signs and wonders, uh, those are two words that often come as a package deal. I won't show you this because we don't have time, but if you you look, do a word search, you'll see that these two words often come together, signs and wonders. And and very often, the third word, miracles, is also with this. So it's like a package deal, signs, wonders, miracles. But understand that the, the word signs here indicates something really important. It indicates the fact that the miracles done by Christ and the apostles were always intended to be signs from God the Father to confirm the validity of both the messenger and the message they preached. Let me say that again. The fact that he calls these signs points to the fact that the purpose of the miraculous gifts was to validate the messenger and the message they preached. That's why God gave these miracles to Christ and the apostles. And and this is exactly what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul's defending his apostleship. Some false teachers have come into Corinth and they're saying that, that Paul is really a sham. He's not a real apostle. Paul says, let me remind you, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. There's our three words again. Paul says, let me just remind you of the testimony that God gave to my words through the use of signs and wonders and miracles. Because that's the point. The point is validation, affirmation, authenticity. The word wonders gives us this idea of awe, that when, when these miracles were done, it, it produced this awe, this awe-inspiring. You could just see the face of the people, the face that we would have if we were there and saw these miracles. In fact, this is the scene that's described for us in Acts chapter 2, Right after the day of Pentecost, we have this new group of believers together, and they're just eating up the teaching of the apostles, and they're they're all there together. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. That's this, this word, wonders. It causes wonder. And then finally... The term various miracles. Literally, it's deeds of power. Deeds of power. They were given the ability to do things that that the only explanation for them is that God is at work in this place. The final description of these sign gifts comes at the end of verse 4 where he says, And by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, we, go, we know that the Holy Spirit gifts all believers with different uh, spiritual gifts to be used for the edification of the church. But here in context, and talking about this, these confirming gifts, this, these witnessing, authenticating gifts, I think in context, these gifts refer to the, the miraculous gifts that were given, in this case, to the apostles who would confirm uh, through their teaching what Jesus had taught. And these gifts were given by the Holy Spirit according to his will. He chose sovereignly which apostle 
would have what gift and in what capacity. Even among the apostles, remember, we read stories of, of primarily Peter and John. We read a lot about Paul. Uh, there's some about Philip, but some of the apostles, we, we really don't know a whole lot about how God used them. Ultimately, he used all of them. But my point is that even among the apostles, different gifts and different capacities of gifts were given in this regard. And that's the idea here. The Holy Spirit gave them according to his own will. But I want us to see the overarching point. What is the author trying to tell us here in Hebrews? He's saying that God the Father has given testimony to the Son and his revelation by giving his chosen messengers the ability to perform miraculous deeds. Those miracles were the validation, the hallmark, if you will, of God the Father to say these men and only these men are the true witnesses of Jesus Christ and they are speaking the truth. Listen to them. That was the point of these miracles. It does bring up a very important point for us to consider because there is great fascination today surrounding the miraculous gifts. You know this. We're told by many that the miraculous gifts are still available today freely for any and every Christian. Some churches even offer classes to teach you how to speak in tongues and how to perform miracles such as healing other people. The problem is the Bible never promised that the miraculous gifts would continue beyond the apostolic era. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God after the apostolic era, stopped healing people, that somehow God is limited in his power. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God did not promise to continue to give individual people miraculous gifts. In fact, we have a hint in our text that these gifts were meant to be confined to this period of time. Remember the word confirmed that I talked about earlier. Why does it matter that that word confirmed is in the errorist tense? That is, that it's a past action that's completed. It's because what the author is saying here is that the confirmation of the apostles to him and his generation is done. It has been confirmed. He doesn't even speak of the gifts as if they're still happening in their midst at that time that he wrote the letter. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that they had all fully ceased by then, but you understand what he's saying is the confirmation has been done. It's been confirmed to us that these are the true words of God. The reason that I'm emphasizing this is because there's great danger of us becoming distracted by the constant pursuit of the miraculous gifts today. The grave danger of being distracted by the desire for miraculous gifts is that in so doing, we miss the crucial truth that God was validating through the true miraculous ministry of the apostles. The sad reality is that many Christians today are so consumed with wanting to speak in tongues or have the ability to physically heal that they miss the point of those miracles altogether. The point of God's is God's testimony to Christ and the apostles and the message that they preached. That's why he gave them those gifts, so that we could have confidence from generation to generation that this is true. That's why the author says this is so great a salvation, because it's been confirmed by God himself in the Son, in the apostles, and by God testifying to them with miracles. And you can trust it. 
you understand? When we get distracted by, by wishing that we had this gift or, or that gift, or if I could just speak in tongues today, I would be fulfilled. We miss the point. The point was to validate the message and the messengers. That's why the author says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, past tense. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He doesn't say, we must pay much closer attention to what God is now speaking to us today. We just need to open our ears and hear God's new revelation. That's not what he says. He says, listen to me, Christians. Pay attention to what we've heard in the past tense, the verified, confirmed words of God. That is what you need. This is very significant for us. Just to seal the deal, I had many more examples. I'm only going to show two. But I want to show you two examples that really help us understand that this really was the purpose of the miracles of both Christ and the apostles, of validation. My favorite example of this comes to us in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus heals the paralytic. Wonderful story, a well-known story, but sometimes we miss the point of the story. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. And they came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's an interesting statement. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's an important question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? And here comes the crucial moment. Jesus says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Now answer the question, which is easier, to verbally say your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, Get up, take your pallet, and walk. Obviously, it's easier verbally to say your sins are forgiven because that's an internal thing and nobody can tell if it worked, right? But if you say, get up to a paralytic, pick up your mat, and go home, everyone's going to know whether or not that happened. And so Jesus says in verse 11, or verse 10, but so that you may know, Don't forget that. So that you may know. It's confirmation, validation. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And what happened? And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. You see the point. Initially, Jesus just says, your sins are forgiven. But he does the miracle to prove that he, A, is God, and B, the sins really were forgiven, as he said. One other example to show the validating ministry of these miraculous signs comes with Paul at Iconium in Acts 14. 
Acts 14, verse 1, it says, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, listen to this, who was testifying to the word of his grace. What's he testifying? To the word of his grace. How? Granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. These are just a couple of examples of many. I literally had many more in my notes, but we don't have time to go through those. But here is the point. What do we have to take away from this other than just a wonderful lesson from the scriptures? We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The revelation of the gospel was given first by the Son of God in human flesh, then through his chosen messengers, and then it was validated by the Father and the Spirit through miracles. All of this adds up to the fact that what we have today are the true, verified words of God written down for us in the New Testament. The significance of this, Christian, is that you can trust this book There's never been a book or a gospel that's been this testified to. The threefold testimony of the Son, the Apostles, and the Father right here for us. We have these verified words written in ink so that we can know the words of the Son. The Old Testament was verified by God. The New Testament's verified by God. And we have a complete canon. The words of God spoken to us. We have it bound in our hands. That should lead us to a conclusion. Really two things this morning as we close. Number one, cherish the words of the Son. Cherish the words of the Son. Let me ask you this morning, how much do you value the Scriptures? Do you understand the links that God has gone through to get those verified words into your hands this morning. He would send his only son to take on human flesh to speak these words and to validate them by his own death and resurrection. And then he would validate them further still by the apostles. And don't forget what it costs the apostles to speak these words. Every single one of the apostles except for John was killed, martyred for their faith. John was exiled for his faith. And finally, God himself performed miraculous works at the hands of Jesus and the apostles that his testimony too would be added to their voices. All of that stands behind the pages of Scripture and the Gospel. No other book in human history has a pedigree like this one. No other salvation has a pedigree like this one. And even now, the Holy Spirit is still proving the validity that this is the true gospel message, but not through miraculous signs, but through the miracle of regeneration. 
Because it's only when these words are preached that the Holy Spirit does his work of waking up a person from spiritual death to spiritual life. Think about this. The the madness of this, as Paul would say, the, the foolishness of this, that through a message preached, people would be saved. How does that happen? It's because it's the very message of God himself. Only the Holy Spirit works through this message when it's preached, and he's validating it over and over again because you're sitting here, and I'm standing here. And the Spirit testifies with us. He is our Father. These words are true. We don't need any more testimony than that. If you're here this morning and you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, but if you're honest, your faith is weak, and your knowledge of Scripture shallow, and your pursuit of holiness slow, then let me ask you, do you cherish the words of the Son? Because it's through the scriptures that God not only saves, but sanctifies. If you want to grow, Christian, if you want to win more successfully in the battle with sin, you don't need to go out on a mountaintop and wait for new words to be spoken. You need to pick up your Bible and feast. Read the words of scripture. Memorize the words of scripture. Meditate day in and day out on the words of Scripture, and the Spirit will use this to strengthen your faith and grow your knowledge and help you to be sanctified. This is the armor, the sword that we take into battle every day. Let me challenge you if you don't memorize Scripture, to start memorizing Scripture today. And not to just memorize Scripture, but to meditate upon it. Each morning after you read the Scriptures, pick a verse, just one verse. And choose to memorize it and make that your meditation verse for the day. What I mean by that is every time you're tempted to sin, you're going to bring that verse back to mind. And quote it, but not just quote it, but pray through it. Think on it. Take it and and get all the marrow out of that verse and apply it to your heart. And then walk in accordance with it. And do it over and over and over again. And you will grow as you feast on the verified words of the Son. But finally... I would challenge all of us to heed the words of the Son. Heed the words of the Son. Jesus came preaching and teaching us many things, but at the center and heart of what he taught was the gospel message. It's the first message that Mark records coming out of his mouth in Mark 1.15. We read it earlier. He came preaching, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I hope that you now have come to understand that the Christian faith is not built upon a house of sand. It's not a a wishy-washy faith that's just built on our human reason or emotions. The Christian faith is built upon the words of God himself, which he has given clear testimony to. And what you have to understand this morning, if you're not a believer, is that the gospel is true. It's true. And what that means is that the gospel confronts our sin. It confronts the fact that we've rebelled against a holy God and we deserve his punishment for our sin. But it also gives us the good news that if you will believe that Jesus Christ really was the Son of God who lived a perfect life and died as a sacrifice on the cross to take the wrath of God upon himself and then rose again from the grave on the third day, If you will believe that his sacrificial life and death is your only hope of being made right with God, then you will be saved. 
The Bible says, repent of your sins. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith and you will be saved by the grace of God applied to you. What a blessing to have a sure word confirmed to us by the Son, by His delegates, the apostles, and by God the Father. May we never doubt it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are overwhelmed as we think about the significance of what we've just learned from Scripture. We're overwhelmed that you care enough about us, not just to save us and redeem us, which for which we're eternally grateful, but also to leave us with instructions that we might know you, that we could study it day in and day out and know you more and know how to, to better follow you and that our hearts might be prepared for eternity with you. And that we might have the, the privilege of being able to verbally share this message. All we have to do is share a message. And you, by your power, will save your people. How wonderful is this? Help us, God, to open our mouths and share the truth of the gospel. Help us to be faithful in this so that we might see the power of the gospel to save. God, we pray you would save those in our midst this morning who are not in Christ. Draw them to true repentance and faith. And we pray for each and every believer here who's truly in you that, that we would be solidified in our faith and that we would walk more faithfully with you because of what we've heard today. We ask it in the precious name of Christ. Amen.